When Myra first heard about the race, she was just a little girl, about seven years old. She saw it all. The violence, the blood, the lives lost. And she thought, okay, this is what normal is. Her parents didn't like the race. They thought it detracted from the actual issues of the day. Income inequality, economic and voter suppression, the rise of fascism in America. But to Myra, the games were exciting. And as she grew up, they seemed to be what most of the people she observed wanted every day to actually be like. And then she met Joe Viterbo. Joe was a racer with a mafioso theme. He talked big, was prone to quick violence, but was often beat up by frail-looking men with bird-like arms. And despite knowing all of this, when Joe Viterbo approached Myra to be his navigator in the next death race, she said yes. Why not? She already had the white fur helmet. Her parents didn't like it, and confronted Viterbo, who pulled his now-famous Tommy gun on them. Myra's parents then both pounded Joe into a mushy pulp with their brittle bird-like arms. But Myra's mind had been made up. The role of navigator fit her. With his fragile ego and propensity to struggle with basic decision-making, Myra found in Joe someone to guide, to soothe, to orient towards greatness. And though Viterbo was running over countless human beings indiscriminately in his path to glory, the stakes felt much lower, the future more in her control, as opposed to being a passenger to her parents' anxiety about the economy, fascism, and the complete lack of participating in televised nude massages. And if she hadn't blown up by a literal hand grenade at Joe Viterbo's side, Where would she have fit in the new society, with the race abolished? Would she find a way to subvert the new administration? Or would she have found a way to be happy within it? You know, one could wonder, if she knew these questions were being asked of her, would she feel seen? Feel grateful someone cared how she felt about the world and her place in it? Or would she simply say, Not from WBEZ Chicago, that you watched it wrong, Wacky Races. Each week we choose a film, tell you different thoughts based on that film. Today's film, Death Race 2000. We're your hosts, Wade and Siggy. Stick with us. I guess we're tuned into this American wacky race. Well, hey everyone, this is again. This is uh, I'm Wade. And I'm Siggy, and you are listening to you watched it wrong, not some other uh, show or podcast you might have downloaded on accident. Unless we're the ones you downloaded <laughs> on accident, and you really meant to listen to this American Life. In which case, well, what's the difference, really? <laughs> exactly. And boy, this movie, uh, this entry in uh, the our wacky race miniseries, this one 
actually does address American life more than any of the other ones does, weirdly. Right? <laughs> it, uh, yeah. Um, right. Uh, and this one is, uh, we should probably say the title of the movie at some point. I, I already did a second ago. It was Death Race 2000. Death Race That's 2000. 1975 Roger Corman production. A Roger Corman movie of all things. We're doing a Roger Corman movie, and yet this seems to be the most uh, relevant movie that we've done so far. And yet we're still doing period pictures. So it's a mad, 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 mad world has been our only... Only movie so far in this series, the Wacky Race series, that is set in its own contemporary time. And then we had a whole string right. of period pictures, which felt like they had to go back to the birth of aviation or uh, the automobile. It's man, in some cases. Uh, or, yes, <laughs> right. Uh, or caveman times. Um, and But now we've leapt into way into the future. Well, first we've jumped from 1969 to 1975 no wacky race we're taking a little pause on wacky races because that whole epic race movement kind of petered out with monte carlo or bust oh yeah aka those daring young men in their jaunty jalopies um and it's like uh and uh, they had a whole revolution in hollywood ever since then and now we're getting uh new hollywood and outlaw cinema and so now we're getting bad boy roger corman Picking up a short story for published in 1960, rumor, and saying, "Hey, <laughs> this would be a good flick for the drive-in." Uh, my exploitation thing. So we've gone from you know like these kind of magisterial uh, celebrations of our past uh, selves as, as innovators into uh, really um, like the most prurient. <laughs> Debased exploitation film, and uh, as you say, it manages to be the most political and maybe the most cerebral. Although there's not much competition there in in, <laughs> really in our wacky race series, but this might be the most cerebral entry in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, because you know what? Thinking of what's co- what came before and what's coming after. Yeah, I think this is the most cerebral of them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not been clear that these movies have said had anything to say about anything other than racing and maybe women's rights, right? And like they've only dabbled right. in that a little bit. Women's uh, rights, uh, the mad, 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 mad world had something to say about greed, but. Yeah, other I'm still that, not sure what it had it. to say about greed other than it's there. <laughs> well, it didn't say it's good, did it? No. So no. it said it's bad. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> it says it's bad, but nobody's immune to it. Everybody's susceptible. Um, right. Yeah. Jaunty Jalopies was 1969. We're now jumping a whole six years ahead to 1975, the year of my birth. And mine. And yours, yeah. the year of our births. We were birthed in the year. Now, who know that they would be thinking ahead 25 years and that we would both live to be both 25 and beyond to yeah. realize it was all a sham. And it's fitting because this is the first movie that like is recognizable as like a Gen X aesthetic to me. Like, oh, this is what movies look like or you know old tv shows look like when i was growing up when i would catch them on tv you know this is more ah 
you know, the film grain, like, you know, the, the fact that we have car mounts, that <laughs> we can actually mount a camera right. on yeah, a car yeah. in our car movie. Like, that's new. That's our first time seeing that. Well, do you know who the DP of this movie is? Tak Fajimoto, uh, Fujimoto. Yeah! Like, holy, <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw that on the screen. Like, holy smokes. I didn't either. And it was co-edited by uh, Louis Teague, who made uh, a number of movies, uh, one of which is Alligator, which is something I've been wanting to cover on this show for a little bit. Tak Fujimoto, I've, now that I've said his name three different ways, yeah. Um, how many Oscars has he won? Jeez. I don't know, but he was the DP for The Sixth Sense, Silence of the Lambs, Gladiator, Philadelphia. Badlands. Badlands. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Signs. Oh, Signs. <laughs> so he's... That's uh, a actually, weird one to get passionate over. <laughs> cool. Well, there, there's, a, there's a shot in Signs that I love so much that I can only appreciate on screen it's like a dolly shot going up. It's like the opening shot. It's one of the opening shots. It's like a dolly shot up to the window, and the the window has a wavy glass in it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't see that on home video. Uh, it, I Well, I saw it when I watched it earlier this year. Oh, you, you did? Yeah. Oh, you must have some 4K or shit on that. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right. Because, I, yeah, I didn't see it on the DVD copy I had. But uh, yeah, no, I, I've always was just always marveled at that one at that one shot. So, Tak Fujimoto special, nice. Um, and music by uh, electronic score by Paul Shahara, who uh, has done a few other things, including Penn and Teller get killed. Really? Yeah. Oh. That's a Wade Carney favorite, right there. It's a good. I one. had the VHS for a very like. Since like eighty nine, I think, or ninety, or whenever it came out, and the bad news <laughs> bears go to Japan. But oh, that's the only bad news bears entry he <laughs> scored. They needed that, you know, Paul Jahara sound for that one. Exactly, can't go to Japan without that Paul Jahara sound. I never would. I never have, <laughs> and never will. Okay, let's get into the numbers. We're uh, usually we uh, well we'll do this. We'll do the now we'll do the numbers first, and then we'll do the cast. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. But can I, can I say my fir- my favorite number first though? Yeah, oh, one hour nineteen minutes. That's pretty nice. Yeah, we've been watching these two and a half hour bozos, and like this is this, this was a real treat. This one to moves. Get- <laughs> Yeah, this one did move. Yeah. This one really moves. You're like, you know, three minutes in and like the people are already getting, well, people aren't getting killed yet, but you know, you see in the cars. But like, the race has started. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like we're you're jumping right into this thing. I loved it. I really appreciate that. I mean, that. Stallone is already fired on the crowd. <laughs> Doing Rambo face. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. This is one, this is like less than a year before Rocky. So like, oh no, a year and a half. You're and a half before the Rockies, so like, we'll get into all that. So do the numbers. Do the numbers. Okay. So, you know, these were all big budget, epic movies up till now. You know, we had budgets ranging from, in, in their time, dollars, uh, $6 million to $12 million. You know, we're talking about like, in today's dollars, it'd be like $50 million to $100 million movies. Uh, this budget was less than half a million. 
the best number I could mm-hmm. find was $300,000, which uh, today would be like a $1.4 million movie. Wow. Cheap, right? Like Most the, of that went to David Carradine's Speedos, I believe. <laughs> yeah, or the one car they pushed over the cliff, you know? Right, exactly. Um, uh, box uh, office. Model plane. Eight million or mm. 38.4 million. So a, you know, 2,666% increase. Like they did, you know, if you're just looking at the. Gangbusters. The business, you know, yeah, if, if you can make them. I mean, this is the Roger Corman way right but i think uh this probably surpassed his expectations i would i would assume um as far as cast goes these have been big ensemble comedies uh, have you ever listened to uh, mike detective yes uh, absolutely one of my favorite comedy things ever uh it's a det- comedy detective serial uh like an one of the early podcast uh serials <laughs> like that and it contains one of my favorite lines of all time. Is it, is it my favorite line too? Where he goes, I don't know. Uh, the weather was like the <laughs> the weather was like the movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world, overcast. <laughs> well, Death Race two thousand is more like the guy's broken leg, undercast, compared to there you go to everything else we've been doing. Um, we have uh, David Carradine. As Frankenstein, we got Sylvester Stallone pre-stardom, David Carradine post-Kung Fu, so I guess he's probably at the height of his stardom right at this point, I guess, until like Kill Bill kind of revives him. I don't know. I've never been like a David Carradine guy. We've got our director, um, whose name I just forgot. Who's our director? <laughs> Me too. I don't even know who made it. Pa- Paul Bartel. Paul Bartel. Paul thank Bartel. you. Paul Bartel in a small part is a guy who unveils Frankenstein. Uh, we have uh, the leader of Cobra Kai. That's right. As Nero. Uh, Martin Cove as Nero the hero. Mm-hmm. And we got John Landis. And it's not even a cameo because he's not a big director yet. But he's one of uh, Tommy Gunn's mechanics. Who gets? Uh, oh, he's one of of Stallone's mechanics. Yeah. Oh, he's one of the guys that gets backed over. Yeah, apparently. That's an okay. I didn't recognize him. I didn't um, either. And that's it. Like otherwise, we'd have to say like, oh, there's Bill Morey, the Deacon. He did the voice of Mutt on GI Joe. <laughs> and um, Mutt, I don't, I don't even remember Mutt on GI Joe. I don't remember Mutt. He had a dog, you know. Um, <laughs> And then so, we have uh, Roberta Collins, who is Matilda the Hun. Great name. Mm-hmm. Great character name. She was in The Big Dollhouse, Women in Cages, and Caged Heat. A lot of cage movies. She had a nice right. run of uh, women in prison movies. But otherwise, that's like this is everyone to speak of in the cast. I feel like I've seen Calamity Jane and other things, but I looked at her IMDb and I didn't see anything else I recognize, but she seemed very familiar. She's got a lot of roles that are like customer, uncredited. <laughs> uh, and then um, Thomasina Payne, she's been uh, in a yes. ton of stuff. Like she's uh, like in Gremlins as customer, uncredited. <laughs> um, yeah, nobody really, <laughs> like so you have Stallone and Carradine, and nobody really had uh, much of a career after this movie. Well, my favorite. Acting-wise. My favorite character in the and in, in, in performance in the whole movie is Myra. 
Stallone's Navigator. Yeah, I was I, wondering why she got singled out in, uh, in the, <laughs> the intro there. Well, I was trying to think of who who I would zone in on, and I thought, oh, why not just zone in on my favorite character? Um, well, yeah, and she she well, we heard your ode to Myra, but uh, we heard it already. It's kind of self-explanatory. Um, I, I I think it's purely because she gave my favorite line in the whole movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, who gives a goddamn shit? Just the way she says it is so perfect. <laughs> and um, and then Stallone immediately—it's my favorite exchange in the whole movie, actually, because Stallone uh, goes into an early self-parody of himself <laughs> in that moment, where she says, "He goes, the turnoff, it's coming up. Should I take it?" Who gives a goddamn shit? Should I? She says I should, so I should, right? Or should I? I don't know. What? Well, I don't think you should. It's definitely a trick. I'll do it. I won't do it. I'd be a schmuck to do it. And then he immediately takes the turn. (laughs) I did it and I'm no schmuck! (laughs) It's a brilliant exchange of dialogue right there. I like the one where he said he... I used to think you were all right, but now I think you're a big, big potato. Stallone's <laughs> <laughs> know? actually pretty good in this. He's, he, you know, he you can say a good know. goddamn shit, but then you have a line where right. you call somebody a baked potato. It's like, it's really <laughs> weird how corny right. it gets sometimes. I know, but like, I think he knows what kind of movie he's in. The fact that he's eating... In that one dinner scene, <laughs> that he's eating sauce with his hands. Uh, okay. He's just eating sauce with his un, uncupped <laughs> fingers. Like, just doing that, but then, like, just doing his dialogue straight as an arrow. It's like, that's clam sauce? pretty amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, what? He's, like this- he's like eating clam or Alfredo sauce or some sort of, some sort of sauce that he's got smeared on his face. And he's eating it with an uncupped fi- hand, with like just just open fingers, and expecting it to go in, and then. <laughs> and he's still wearing like his silk and, tie with a tie pin, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> he's very natty in this movie. And then doing all his dialogue unironically. I mean, that's that's pretty. You got to be self aware. Is that like a making that. fun of Italians thing? Like, or is that that he's I, just a slob in a in a. You know, or that he's a fake Italian. He's the, the two, least know? sympathetic non-Nazi in this movie, and so they just have to make him seem boorish at every opportunity. Is that what that is? Exactly. I think that's what that is. He's got to be the biggest, like, boorish loudmouth that can't back up anything he states because he gets beat up by David Carradine in a skin-tight suit that looks like. You know, he looks like Jack's fucking Skellington. So I don't know how he could have, you know, how he could have lost. He's got a mechanical arm. I mean, he can uh, shift in less than five seconds. So he can probably and I lo- throw a punch, <laughs> although just, it doesn't look like it's very, it's always connecting. In my, <laughs> exactly. In my intro, I almost mentioned how whenever uh, Joe Viterbo is in danger, uh, he's instantly mystically doubled by Jack Palance, who <laughs> jumps in to like be his take his fights for him. 
Because literally, the stuntman, his profile was totally Jack Palance. <laughs> Which meant, I guess, he was Dick Durock. But that's, that's just speculation. I didn't check the credits. Let's just jump into this. I don't know. What do you Let's think? jump in. What would you think of Death Race 2000? I'm not going to go through the whole plot. There's a race. You should watch the movie. It's a lot of fun. I, I think this movie's a hoot. I mean, it's a cult classic for a reason. Yeah. I remember yeah. seeing it off television when I was a kid, and I had heard about it before I saw it. I don't know from who. I remember there was a buildup to it. Even on television, they showed, like, the tire ripping someone's head clean off. And there's a... <laughs> There's a weird morality to a, to this movie um, in, a, in a lot of different cases, but it is totally a, a hoot. Not only is it brisk and it moves and it knows exactly what it is, it's also saying something which I did not remember. Yeah, I didn't remember that part I saw at it all. As a kid. I didn't remember the revolutionary kind of... I knew that, remember there was, I remember the baby part where there was someone trying to stop the racers. I didn't remember why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so the fact that there was a revolutionary subplot was fresh air to me. I didn't remember that. Well, let's, let's set that up. So, we're in the year 2000, if you couldn't tell, uh, the way in the future. And apparently in 1979 or thereabouts, there was a fascist takeover of. Uh, of America, or basically, you know, we, America just became fascist. Probably, you know, from 1975 perspective, um, they were just trying to say, like, it continues on its current track, and um, right, and it gets threatened by France, who destroys their economy <laughs> and their telephone system, and so, in order to save uh, America from this external threat, there must always be an external threat. Um, that the uh, uh, he seizes power. We get a fascist fist with the Nazi lightning bolt on it uh, on our flag. Um, we take over a bunch of other countries. That's the American way: is to pull no punches. And now we have a summer palace in uh, Peking. Uh, we're calling it. Where the Peking. And uh, well, that's actually pretty brilliant because it's like it's it's basically saying the U.S. is totally like subjugated itself, but we're gonna mispronounce it on purpose so that it doesn't sound like we have. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, and uh, well, we we've taken it over, so it's like you know we're gonna put it in the McDonald's. We're gonna give it a name that's easy for us to say. That's what Speaking. you do. That's what you do. Um. Yeah, I guess maybe they're putting in a Burger King. <laughs> um, and it's like we have a whole like uh, decadent uh, ancient Rome uh, bread and circuses things happening where uh, we're going to have this death race 2000. The president giving you what you want because he loves you. So he's going to mm. give you all the death and mayhem and bloody entertainment that you could desire and also lifting up heroes for you to both love and despise. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what the death race 2000 is. The, the, the moment I realized I was in for something different was when the president says never before in history have the masses forgone all comfort 
that the spirit of genius could thrive and seek the golden key to a new time of plenty in the fertile field of minority privilege. Yeah. Once more, he's gonna bring I up the... give you what you want. Yeah. And he's going to bring up the minority rule uh, later in the, in the movie, too. Um, right. Uh, minority being the white people ruling over uh, Asian people. Uh, well, and maybe black people. I don't think we see any in this movie. So who knows uh, what's going on there? Right. Minority meaning, I imagine, being the the rich and wealthy. So, right? Oh, well. Minority that, privilege. That too. But if we're ruling over China, then we are going to be the minority um, compared to them. Mm. Uh, unless something really drastic happened, um, which the movie doesn't get into. <laughs> Let's not do that. So we have all this fascist symbolism, but then our rebels who hang out in this uh, power plant in their factory <laughs> wearing, clothes. In their blue-collar clothing. And wearing workers' right. caps are really coded as, like, socialists, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and they have, like, green tree badges on their arms. We never really get... They call themselves, like, the anti-race league, although Thomasina Payne kind of sounds like she's saying anti-rape league. She might have actually said anti-rape. I wasn't sure. They, they have some the, where they say it's uh, the whole thing is Operation Anti Race, which feels <laughs> a little weird. Yeah, you think they might want to broaden that a little bit, um, right? Uh, with their political stances, I guess we're simplifying it for uh, you know the the popcorn crowd. That's fine. Um, but in the, I really, and they're I using really the dug- actual American flag, the stars and stripes as we know and love them right. in uh, one year prior to our bicent- bicentennial as movie audiences. So we're rooting for these folks, right? Except they're not all, they're not entirely sympathetic, maybe. I really enjoyed in the opening sequence when they, they, they cut from the pencil drawing opening titles, which I, I, I was surprised by. Yeah, somebody... <laughs> <laughs> sprung in the budget for some prisma colors <laughs> exactly <laughs> and some, some typing paper right so so the pencil sketches go by. by you can see like the edge of yeah. the gel of yeah, the, from the, on the overhead projector that they use <laughs> but then it cuts to the 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 trombone bell and they have the band and shots of the band and the crowd in the in the stadium and they have a quick cut to just a guy holding a Nazi flag on a stick. Yeah, right. Which I found really powerful. Just like like the Spar- Star Spangled Banner is playing. And then just a quick normal guy sitting there with his, you know, with this little Nazi flag. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, it was actually quite powerful. Yeah. Nazis in Milwaukee, apparently, which is where Matilda the Hun uh matilda and herman who don't even have german accents they're just milwaukeeans who are nazis and hey people seem cool with that they're not even the villains of this movie (laughs) no they're not they're not even the most evil they're not even the racers we're supposed to root against the most (laughs) that would be the italian (laughs) (laughs) and the whole race is kind of well, not officiated. It's it's narrated by a, a a very overt personality of Junior Bruce, 
Yeah. And I and I remember being very before I knew he was going to be the one that was going to like basically guide us through the whole movie. The deacon gets up and says, "A new American champion will be crowned for all the world to behold in awe, in respect, in fear." And then it cuts to Junior Bruce in all his ridiculousness. Hey. Hi, everyone. He's like a 70s, you know, personality. He's a broadcaster, man. Yeah, I and, dig and this portrayed guy. by a guy named The Real Don Steele. Yeah. Who I did not look too far into, and I should have. Uh, you know, he's Do a, you know anything about The Real Don Steele? Career he? DJ. He's just a radio guy. One of the more so popular. So he's the real deal. DJs, I guess he bounced around. Started in, uh, what, he was in Omaha at one point. I don't know. He sure sounds like just a radio. This is like a pure broadcaster. I love I love this type. It's a dying breed. And he sold the whole, every moment he was in. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's the <laughs> and they're coming out of the Lincoln <laughs> Tunnel, and we see the San Fernando Mountains. Yeah, he's a, he's in Gremlins too. He's just a voice on the radio. At oh, one really? Point. Yeah. Ah, rockin' Ricky Rialto. He's credited as. <laughs> Um, I think we might hear him get attacked by gremlins uh, on the air in Gremlins. Oh, it's right. We do. So we set up our racers. You got, you know, Nero the hero, Matilda the hun, Calamity Jane and his and her um, navigator. You got uh, Joe Viterbo yeah. and Myra. No proposal for this race. Oh, we're just, this race has been going on for 20 years. That's right. That's great. And then just jump right into it. No preparations. The teams are already formed. We just show them. Right. We just and watch them show up at the starting point, at the starting line. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. And then we've got our lead character. Is there a prefix to his name, or am I just forgetting it? It's just Frankenstein. It's just Frankenstein. He is Frankenstein. And they say that because he's been torn apart so many times and put together. But yeah. We later realized. I assume his last name is Smonster. Smonster. <laughs> so um, he's, uh, it's Mary Shelley, actually. That's what his real name is. But we find out later in a later scene that he is actually, he's not Frankenstein together. He's just one of many. Whenever one dies, he's put back in. He's a new one takes the place. That goes by so fast. I'm I'm not even sure I'm remembering it correctly, because he basically just like in one love scene just runs through and says every time a Frankenstein gets torn up and dies, they just put in a new one, and then now I'm going to be the last one. But he does so, like, have an he, artificial hand. So why is but that? But it's so I I don't know if he's run a race before or not. Yeah. But, I don't He's know. He's got an artificial hand. Yeah, this part didn't really stick with me. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I prefer, I prefer that he really has been in. And I just kind of ignore that part. I'm like, oh, they just didn't have the <laughs> special effects to show him with all the scars and stuff. <laughs> well, because he, he he takes off the 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 rubber mask underneath his mask to show that. He's not disfigured like he might, likes to tell everybody he is. Yeah. And the, and then that reason is because he's not been in all these races. But that's just not as fun. 
It's more fun if he has been in all these races and he really did lose an arm and a leg and half a chest. Um, Because he did, he did, he certainly carries himself like someone who has. You know, he carries himself like someone who's been in all these races. He waves his arms around like somebody who's been stitched together from dead parts. Right. Well, that just might be his stiff acting. But he, (laughs) but he says that he, there's been many Frankensteins. Yeah, and there's no and Swiss that, doctor, just there's no Swiss American doctor, know-how. Right. Well, he says Native American know-how. I don't think he means Native American <laughs> in the sense that I first parsed it. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that are just kind of tossed out here in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that Albuquerque is the home of the Native American Museum, like that's a strange footnote that never... <laughs> Which yeah, I was trying to figure anything. out why did they make a point to say that? Yeah. Just, uh, I don't know. Um, just to make us think of the the plight of the Native American and how the American way has treated them. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's... Well, well, that's know. a great reason. I just, yeah, didn't really... It didn't really factor into to much of the other stuff. Yeah, you expect that to, like ping back at some point it never really does especially when we have a cowboy a cowgirl in the race <laughs> exactly driving a bull <laughs> you know calamity jane known for being a bull driver <laughs> <laughs> i was i was expecting her demise to kind of tie into all that you know in some way but it it, it doesn't it just kind of it's just one of those suspensive whole like you're almost about to back over a mind. You almost do. You yeah. don't. You almost do. And then and then she does. Yeah. A little, they're teasing us. But she was getting nervous because she looked around and saw that all these cars had been shot up. So she thought she was in the middle of a, a trap. You know, this movie has the ability. That's what's so amazing. So many, so many striking things about this movie is that you can write it off as just being schlock just because of its subject matter. But there's so many rich things in it, and then it has the capacity to do some really striking imagery every now and again. Like when right before Calamity Jane's navigator gets run over in the most ridiculous way, <laughs> um, there's this gorgeous shot of her sitting in her car with the sky and the just open range just behind her. Like it's it's breathtaking. Attack Fujimoto did just this amazing shot. However, it also set up the fact that we did not see this car coming <laughs> <laughs> to then run over the, the the navigator. Well, you know, it's like uh, being on the train tracks in the Looney Tunes cartoon. You look right. left, you look left, right, look right. You take one little you step, step out. and the train. <laughs> Yeah, there's some stuff like that in this movie. <laughs> right. Totally. But my my absolute favorite moment in the whole movie, um, and it was my favorite moment before, it's my favorite moment now, and it was exactly as I remembered it, is Euthanasia Day at yes. Mercy Hospital. This is the biggest laugh of the movie. It is the biggest laugh of the movie, and it's done so well. Yeah. I'm really amazed is. at how well it's done. And weirdly, it's 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 kind of it's it's Frankenstein's first kill, but it 
Well, go ahead and see what happens. It shows a bit of morality in it in a weird way, you know? Yeah. Because it sets uh, up this character. The elderly is worth a thousand. No, wait. Elderly are worth 500 points and babies are worth a thousand, right? Uh, I think it's men are worth a hundred. I think it's men are worth a hundred points. Yeah. Women are worth 200. The elderly are worth a thousand or 500 and the babies are worth a thousand. I think that's what it was, right? So. I think they got too uh, many zeros, but um, it doesn't matter. And so every year they do the death race, nurses at Mercy Hospital uh, wheel the infirm and elderly out in the middle of the street to be run over by the racers. And they do it so gleefully, you know, like the, the nurses are all so happy to wheel these people out there. And then they go and run behind the head, hedges to watch. And then Frankenstein comes zooming down and is barreling down on these uh, wheelchairs in the middle of the street. But the last second, veers off to the right, goes behind the hedges and just plows through all the nurses. <laughs> and you see these these amazing shots of what I guess are actresses on trampolines <laughs> who are just kind of like jumping up from behind the edges. Yeah. It's really great. It's pretty convincing. It's, too. Fan, it's very convincing and it's hilariously done. Yeah. And so you're just like, and, 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 and I think the itch that scratches is that, is that thing of like, they were being cruel for fun's sake. And then, you know, and then like Frankenstein is like, I'm not going to take your easy bait. You guys wanted them dead, so I'm taking you out. Yeah, right. And there's more points to get by the number of nurses than there are by the number of elderly people on the street. And No, no, there's more points for the elderly. No, he's giving up a lot of points by... Doing this. Well, there's presumably there's more nurses behind the hedges. No, and his navigator like says he just gave oh. up a lot of points. Oh, like, that's he, right. He right, just right. wasted an opportunity because it's uh, here's but the scoring you're, system. You're taking ten points right. for a man, twenty for a woman, oh. forty for a baby, seventy for the elderly, and one hundred points for Phoebes or people in wheelchairs. What are Phoebes? Like feeble. Oh, okay. Or, okay. And feebled. So the so yeah, so wheelchairs are hundred points each. higher. But the fact is that he took out the people who were being cruel as opposed to the people who were just going to be victims. And that was interesting to me. He's, you know, uh, you know he's, he's, he plays by his own rules, Frankenstein. Right. It's Frankenstein. <laughs> it's a great gag regardless. It's really, yeah. It's really well done. No, it's hilarious. It's a great punchline. So, so this is what I find interesting about Frankenstein's character. So... And like where this movie's heart is, um, is that we have this group of rebels. Normally, when there's a you set up a fascist president, a fascist government, and then you set up a group of rebels. Normally, you're supposed to be siding with the rebels, right? right. And the right. arc that you would expect is that Frankenstein, whose navigator is a plant f- by the rebels, um. That Frankenstein would join the rebellion, right, uh, and help overthrow the president, and he will kill the president at the end of the movie, but he never joins the rebellion, really. No, right? No. Um, he's- he later that he he hires the rebellion in his cabinet, but he doesn't ever join the rebellion. No. no. Um, 
And and that's what I find interesting is that um, uh, he's always he's like even when he's kind of helping. Uh, what's uh, his navigator's name? Annie. Annie. Even when he's kind of like he's Annie Smith helping. He's he even ha- he wants the same thing that Annie wants, but he's still not going to do it Annie's way, right? Right. Can knock her. He'll still run over the. <laughs> The the person who's supposed to replace him, <laughs> you know, and kill members of their of the of the revolution, because he's like, this is I'm I'm not I'm not party to your party, you know. Yeah. What I'm doing, I'm doing on my own. There's a, there's a definitely a very individualistic attitude this movie takes. Exactly. Yeah. That it's better to be on your own to remain Han Solo than to join the rebellion. Uh, and that's kind of borne out when, you know, Thomasina Paine, she evokes George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. She's got the stars and stripes when she um, gets to be secretary of uh, defense of the interior, though. What's their right. first proclamation is that she will tolerate no rebellion. Right. <laughs> right? Well, it's the hypocrisy of all revolutionaries. Yeah. Is that when she's the minister of domestic security... She plans to deal very harshly with rebels. Anyone unhappy with happiness can go find somewhere else to live. Yeah. Then she becomes a nativist, right? <laughs> like she's, right. you know, like spouting some fascist lines there. And so uh, it's borne out that Frankenstein was right to be distrustful of of this kind of organized rebellion, uh, which is kind right. of where I'm at, too. Yeah. I'm very... Very suspicious of that. Um, I mean, I mean, there's, 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 there's definitely some critical, some proof in today's society that the John Wayne mentality of individualism against the society is a faulty one. But there, at the same time, there's reason to distrust. To, to, excuse me, to distrust organizations. And definitely in the 70s, there was a lot of distrust of any organized, like, counterculture <laughs> at that time. Yeah, well, John Wayne was definitely tapping the most into. distrustful of all. <laughs> he yeah, wasn't, totally. you know, he, John Wayne was an anti-establishment in any sense of the word, you know. Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, he was all about, you know, the the Indians should stay on the reservation and be happy they have it. Right. You know? I'm just saying that there's this this feeling that, that the John Wayneism that I brought up was just the thought that uh I'm whatever I think is, you know, the good guy with the gun, you know, that sort of like like me against the world. There's no community, there's just me and what I think. That kind of mentality, you know, is 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 a dangerous one as well. But Certainly, at this time, the um, distrust of all these <laughs> revolutionaries and where <laughs> is certainly prevalent in Death Race Two Thousand, which is very fascinating. That at the end, somehow Frankenstein becomes president. I don't know how that happens. The people, <laughs> but then love he him. invites in the 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 revolutionaries. You know, then he becomes comes in. You could tell, but the movie the kind of love him because the movie they all wear F's on their shirts. Right, but the the movie kind of makes it seem like he became president because he ran down the president. 
<laughs> like that was just how he did how he this automatically becomes president now. <laughs> Someone had to fill the power vacuum, I guess. None of those uh, other brown yes, shirts and brown ties and brown jackets for uh being groomed. So um so for the rebellion thing, the rebel uh-huh. uh, behind the wheel, the thing I think would have really worked, you know, David Carradine's good in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. But the they originally wanted Peter Fonda, and I'm not a Peter Fonda fan, but I think that would have really worked. <laughs> yeah, I I completely 100 percent 100 percent agree with you. I'm I'm not a really a Peter Fonda fan, but yeah, that would would have been better. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it would have worked 100 um, percent. You're right. I think it would have been a great use of his screen screen persona i'm trying now with every one of these movies in our entry to watch like a uh, a supplemental movie just to kind of give me some context and so for this one i like i need a a gritty car chase movie from uh this period uh just to see like it's a aesthetic point of comparison so i watched uh dirty mary crazy larry which i'd never seen before 1974 uh chase picture that's a good. That's a good driving. Peter Fonda, really annoying in that movie. I did enjoy it. <laughs> the the stunt driving um, is pretty amazing in that in that one. Um, and Vic Murrow is awesome in it. It's worth it watching it just for him. But I would much rather have seen Peter Fonda in this movie than in uh, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. In fact, just. Huh. I don't know if he could have switched David Carradine into that and if it would have worked. Yeah, would he have been better in that one? Mm, not crazy enough. He's too, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's too... Uh, Together. Yeah, he just seems too centered, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, speaking of David Carradine. So there's a scene in this movie where he chokes... Um. Uh, semi-erotically chokes uh, his love interest. Um, He will go on to die of autoerotic asphyxiation. I have only learned today reading about him that he attempted to hang himself when he was five. Oh, my. And that John Carradine uh, found him and and saved him. Uh, So he's got a history with the Getting choked out thing. Huh. Anyway. Well. (laughs) This podcast is swinging into high. (laughs) Uh, So, um, uh, sex. (laughs) Yeah, and lots of it. Well, well, not a lot of sex, but some sex. There isn't a lot. Um, There's some, yeah. A lot of TNA a lot, a lot of big, in this movie. Definitely a lot of TNA. They, uh, unabashedly, like, uh, full frontal, lots of uh, requiring their actresses just lay on set completely nude while a man stands over and talks for a really long time. <laughs> then I felt very bad for the people on set. Uh, you're talking also, about the... Uh, the the love scenes between Frankenstein and Annie shot in various yeah. hotel conference rooms that they rented out. <laughs> Just big warehouses that they got like one or two pieces of furniture. It was like community theater. 
making a hotel room. <laughs> it was crazy. And at their pit stop, their pit stop in St. Louis, uh, where they're all getting massages in a Roman bathhouse kind of setup, and well, it looks a little more like a hotel lobby, that the, right? You know, like, that they rented up for the Radisson. Like <laughs> getting their cameras straight up in there. One of my, I did really like how the great pan from Nero's memorial, and then like did not care one second. Like, just stayed on it for, like, less than a second and then whipped over to everyone getting massaged in the nude. <laughs> just, down the, just down the way. I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I like that. That was a good choice. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, we get some boobs. We get some butts. Uh, there is um, male nudity as well, but no frontal. No on-screen mm-hmm. peen. I guess that would have been an X rating at this point. Stallone's got a little bit of tasteful crack showing. Yeah, yeah. You can some bulbous, uh, yeah, little little beefcake in there. Not much. David Carradine's got a lot of open shirt action, open jumpsuit, whatever he's he's wearing. Spindly in 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 comparison to everyone else. I mean, he's kind of in like gimp gear. He's got the zippers, like the fetishy zippers. His fans. uh, the 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 sacrifice who's offering her body to him, uh, she's got a zipper choker. Did you notice that? She's got like a I did the golden zipper. Like that's part of a his look. But yeah, I showed this movie to my kids because I'm father of the year. <laughs> I wish I had seen your text. Uh, earlier in the day. Well, I knew I, I knew there was it. nudity. Um, you know, Common Sense Media is a nice resource for this kind of thing. Excellent source. Although I find them uh, uh, too, a little too prudish and reserved um, uh, oh, at totally. times. But, you know, like their sex warning will be an on-screen kiss. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't really think that needs a warning. I think you can leave that right. off. It, it's a great resource with the knowledge that these are some crazy prudish people. Yeah. Kissing is not something I anybody should need to shield their children from, I should hope. Um, but there was no entry for this. So I was going by my memory. Really? Which I think I might have watched the TV edit of I this did. movie. Yeah. Although I'm not sure because I know I saw the... Um, is every part replaced? Wait a minute and I'll show you. Like, I saw that scene. I remember that line distinctly. But she's nude. Oh, she's right. topless in that scene. So I don't know if they, like, fuzzed it out new, or, yeah. like, it was an alternate take where she's got something on. I don't know. I don't know how that worked. Um, I was, uh, you know, the, the, the IMDB parents' guide section made the nudity sound more brief than it ended up being, but, you know. <laughs> it's not very brief. <laughs> I was like, I, you know, I talked to uh, Seymour about it ahead of time. I was like, from a movie pick, I, I could do Death Race 2000. I need to watch it anyway, and I'm having trouble staying up late at night to watch it after the kids go to bed. Um, uh, you know, it's got some 70s sleaze in it. It's got some nudity and, like, or, you know... Um, uh, Fight Club is streaming, and I could try to inoculate them against the Proud Boys' uh, way of co-opting it and 
like make sure they see it as satire. And she's like, I'd rather you show them the sleaze. <laughs> I, I, I think you made the right choice. I, I'm on Seymour's <laughs> side there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she did not object. Um, and, I was know, wondering. I really was because I would have objected. I objected. Well, it's you know, it, I, I think it's funny that. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely a leering camera. It's definitely sleazy. But the idea oh, that yeah. seeing boobs in this movie should be more disturbing than seeing heads decapitated oh. and groins run through oh. with giant knives is kind of a weird, <laughs> weird reaction. Right, right, right. But that's the, absolutely that's the no, no. The violence is one. the violence is definitely the more disturbing aspect of the movie than the nudity for sure and yet me and the the kids are all laughing at all the violence like we're we're cracking up over it you know well that's good i'm glad (laughs) because the violence you can write off the 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 nudity is well because the violence is is to use a phrase that probably doesn't warranted movie magic whereas (laughs) Whereas the uh, uh, the nudity uh, is God's magic. The nudity is well. The nudity is literally an actress being made to stand on set naked in front of all these crew members. You know, it's a little different. So I don't know. I I I have less of a problem with the morality of seeing nakedness than I do with the 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 experience of the person on set having to do it. That's really uh, where most of my discomfort comes from. Well, like not every having to wonder why was I made to do this? And like, yeah, I know people want to see. And, blah, 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 blah. and some of those performers may have felt that way. And some might not have, you know, and some may not have. Exactly. So Courtney Weaver wanted to be totally nude in alien. You know, she thought it would have been better to show Bush. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that explains that line in that uh, in this. Remember the SNL sketch where they did aliens? Do you remember that? So Gurney Weaver hosted, and they did a, a, a sketch about aliens. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A really great sketch. But in one of the moments is right as the they're like the aliens are right outside the door, and Sigourney goes, "Wait, wait!" And then she starts taking off her <laughs> jumpsuit. Yeah, I remember. And someone says, "Oh, stop it, you Ripley! We've already seen you in underwear. In your underwear." And she's like, "Oh, okay, fine." <laughs> Or there's the, there's the <laughs> have you seen um, the disaster artist? Uh, there's the scene. Where, I've not seen that yet. No, oh, no, no, no. well, there's a the scene where I want to. The men in the set are trying to come to the defense of the actress <laughs> who's being subjected to uh, Tommy Wiseau's ox-like lovemaking. Uh, to quote some review I read <laughs> once, and she's like, "I'm okay, guys. I'm all right. You know, let's just do the shot." Um, so, you know, <laughs> right. The performers get to make their own decisions too. That's Usually. True. I hopefully. mean, Kate Winslet certainly has an opinion <laughs> about what she would, will do and what she won't do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not always the case, but one hopes. Um, and it, you know, I just, uh, I was, uh, raised to, to feel that having an interest in sex was something I should hide and be ashamed of. And I, (laughs) (laughs) and that human bodies are something I shouldn't ever look at. And I, I I still feel that way. I don't want my, I don't want my kids to, to have that. Um, Hang on. That's true. 
I also remember one time I was watching the Tonight Show and Sandra Bullock was on, and I think I think it was Jay Leno in the early days of of his hosting. And it came back from commercial and they were in mid conversation about how weird it was that someone could spend ninety nine cents on a movie rental and see you naked. That always stuck with me. See me naked. You know what I mean? You know. Like they no, no, no. Like, she was talking about herself. Okay. <laughs> she was talking about herself. I believe in Demolition Man is specifically what they were talking about. But it's like, yeah, it's weird. Like, somebody just like turned 99 cents over and there there I am. <laughs> <laughs> All my privacy. So I, I, that always stuck with me. Because we seem to have no other segue, I got something. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so uh, Grace, the the interviewer who keeps saying, "My dear friend," oh yeah, is that a Barbara Walters joke? I don't know what it is. It's I'm funny. Not sure, I'm sure it's, it's funny, it's but I'm gag. sure it's it's relating to somebody. So there's a fascinating sequence where she interviews Rhonda Bainbridge, the widow of. Joe Viterbo's first kill. Oh yeah, and what's what's interesting about it to me is that the movie shows it very clearly to be a TV set that they're filming on. All the crew are wearing lab coats and stuff, but the woman, the Wanda Bainbridge, is shown in like a house coat, and she's looking like she had just been caught unawares, like they just walked into her house. And she's like looking very nervous and clutching her her collar like like a TV crew just came into my house. But they're clearly on a set. But doesn't um, the host, what did you say her name was, Gloria? Doesn't she say, this is my Grace. house, like I brought you into my house? And then she says, this is my house. Yeah. yeah, she does say, I brought you into my house. So it's completely discordant on all levels, is that she's in a weird house coat. She's looking like, oh, what's going on here? Why, why am I here? And then yet everything seems to be staged. And then she, Grace says, I brought you to my house. It's amazing. I, I that That was one of the most... I think that was one of the most brilliant scenes in the movie just because they never said, okay, this isn't, she's an actress and this isn't really her widow or we've paid off the widow or she's in on it or whatever. They just let it be and let us see like all the, none of this makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I was really, I thought that was really great. And like where this is in the movie, this is when the rebellion has really started right. happening and so like this is how they're going to distract like they don't want to acknowledge that the that, that, that this is happening uh and so this is right like and they keep rewriting history saying that the, the the players aren't getting killed by revolutionaries they're just they're just they're still in the race <laughs> yeah so paul bartell the director uh has said that he wanted this to be a funnier movie and that roger corman took a lot of the comedy bits out and I don't see how put the like bloody they want stuff this to be back more in. funny. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I know, but somehow it was supposed to be more of a comedy, and the comedy stuff got taken out, and more blood got put in. Which I don't know. I would love to see the funnier version of this. 
I feel like this movie does a pretty great job though of balancing the laughs and the and the gore. Well, there's enough there's enough cartoony score and FX during the kills. Like boing, you know, <laughs> they put in like literal like boing sounds when people get killed. So like I think we know it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> like if they there's going to be more of that, I don't know if I if it would work. Like for me, the only part of this movie that doesn't really work is just the chemistry between David Carradine and uh, what's her face is Annie. You know, just Annie's not a very compelling character. Uh, She's written too thinly, and uh, you know, we get a lot of those those scenes of them dancing uh, uh, before she uh, apparently is out of obligation as his navigator is going to make love to him that night. Um, uh, those scenes just don't really, don't really work. Yeah. Which is weird because there's so much complication in that whole thing. If she's, if she's undercover, if she's under obligation, if she doesn't, if she doesn't mind giving herself over, if she does mind, uh, you know, or, 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 or what, if she's just doing things for her, her cause, or if she's really, you know, there's a yeah. lot going on there. So those should be more interesting, but it, they just she simply is, aren't. Right. She is brainwashed as the racer fans are, you know, the one who sacrifices herself. Like, yeah, there's there's something to be said there. And I don't know if the movie's not taking the time to think about it, I think. Right. It, it doesn't, doesn't require take much time thought. for much. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> The movie doesn't take much time for many things. I mean, even all the the kills themselves are very quick. And I remember when I watched it on television, I used to think the, uh, that the kills were cut quick for television's sake. But no, they're pretty much as they are in the movie. Yeah, and, um, probably because the, the effects one, the are one... awful. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like the blood on Stolen's I, I... face looks like cream of tomato soup. It's like it's not even yeah, good really... corn syrup. <laughs> blood you know right. it's literally tomato sauce yeah, yeah. The, the recipe um, i made as a kid to make your own fake blood like they didn't even bother with that <laughs> the chocolate milk and red yeah they didn't yeah, do that yeah they literally just throw tomato sauce it's already red yeah like you can um, like the sea has got like flour in it like it's not the right <laughs> it doesn't even look like a liquid <laughs> well i i remember in my memory the thing I remembered about Death Race 2000 was the nurse gag and then the moment when Stallone runs over the head and neck. Well, I remembered it very vividly as a decapitation of the workman who's putting up a light and falls off the ladder. He's putting up a flag <laughs> oh, yeah. and falls off a ladder. And then the, his partner is going, yeah, 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 do it, do it, do it. And then Stallone runs over his head. And I remember it being literally like this really graphic, realistic decapitation. And I wasn't looking forward to seeing it again. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, that, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like I made up, I literally rebuilt that all in my head as something very realistic as a kid. Yeah. And you death proofed um, it up and, in your mind. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that still, that, that scene was interesting to me and on a different reason because I was so disturbed why his partner would be like, yeah, 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 go ahead and do, like, kill him. Oh, because he pulled on the rope and uh, tripped him. Yeah. yeah, I see that now. Yeah. now. 
But like the the thing Pretty that I petty thought was amazing response. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I thought was amazing in this rewatch is that Stallone asks him, "What do I, should I let him go?" And the guy goes, "No, no, no, do it, do it." And he goes, "Well, fair's always right." <laughs> <laughs> and then runs over his head. Yeah. So this is fair's always right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not sure what's fair. <laughs> the nastiest kill for me was the one where he, I think it's the guy, the fisherman, uh, the fisherman mistook him for Frankenstein when he backs over onto his crotch and then peels out and the blood's spraying yeah. out. That was a, that was a low blow. That was really there, nasty. Tommy Gunn. And also in that. That whole scene is filled with the most cartoonish music and sound effects. And then they have the nastiest kill, but also some of the most craziest stunt driving in that scene where the car literally like just drops down over that cliff. Oh, yeah, yeah. That me- that me- it's like, oh my God. Yeah, I hope that was late in the production. <laughs> I do too. Um, but yeah, but like, yeah, my, my favorite kill, I think, was the manhole cover. Was the guy's yeah, playing chicken? Pretty... That's my favorite. Kid. Yeah, just like how everyone is cruel to each other in this world, right. exactly. Constantly, yeah. Closing the mail cover, and he tries to jump down. That <laughs> no, the, the guys that the guys that come back up to laugh, and then they get their yeah. heads splat. That's yeah. that's the one I like. That's my favorite. That was great. Uh, I keep calling him Tommy Gun. It's Machine Gun Joe. He's got two Machine Tommy gun guns Joe. on the front of his car that, that are never go off. Non-functional. But the knife is functional. It's not clear when he's shooting his Tommy gun at the stands because they're booing him. <laughs> yeah, we don't see anybody go down. If, if those are live rounds or not, like we don't see any people die or any squibs uh, as a result. I do wonder. You know, we see fans. We see fans of Calamity Jane. They're wearing cowboy hats. They have a mm-hmm. banner. We see. The Nazi uh, Matilda the Hun uh, fans waving Nazi flags. It'd be nice to see one of them get beat up, but we don't get that. We nope. see the Frankenstein fans. They all have big Fs on their shirts. We don't see any Nero the Hero or uh, Machine Gun Joe fans. And Machine Gun Joe is supposed to be like the second most popular racer, but everyone seems to hate him, which I think is funny. Well, he's the second most popular racer because people racer because people keep thinking he's he's Frankenstein. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> he would have kill you. <laughs> Stallone is pretty good in this movie. Yeah, he's actually real. I, I my memory of the movie was: did I like him just because I knew he was the one who he was the only one I knew who he was? Like I couldn't believe he was in this movie when I was a kid, right? Yeah. But like looking at it now, I'm like, no, he knows exactly what movies he's in and he's given exactly what the movie needs. Yeah. He's, he's really good in it. He's he's really good when he's not taking himself too seriously. You know? <laughs> right. It's like I, I can't even get past the commercial for Cobra. I've never you know, like that version oh. of Stallone I can't this has no appeal. I can't stand it. You know? A friend of mine told me, you got to see Co- Cobra's the best. You got to see Cobra. I finally saw it, and I drunkenly called him, and I said, this? Really? 
It was, I, I no, this movie is terrible. Like, there's, I, I, there's nothing entertaining about this. <laughs> Whereas Stallone in Death Race 2000, he's really good. I think he's great. See, and I, I like him like doing his shtick in like Guardians of the Galaxy two. You hated it. Yeah, I hated. I it. I like, I like it when he's goofing around. Well, I, I loved him in Spy Kids three. Oh yeah, he the 3D plays. one. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. He's great in it. <laughs> hey, save it for the French. I did like that line a lot. It showed how people were buying the lines, hook, line, and sinker. They started to get rowdy. Jova Turbo goes, "Hey, save it for the French." I liked how the president pointed out how the word sabotage comes from the French. <laughs> Which only proves <laughs> that they're behind this. So we get to the we're we're getting near the end, and uh, Frankenstein has picked up that Annie is a revolutionary, and then um, uh, kind of has it out with it, and then drugs her for a brief period of time. Yeah, using his stash Where, of sleeping pills, he keeps right by the gas pedal. Which is an alarmingly large amount of sleeping pills. Yeah. Don't know why he would need that supply for his cross-country right. adrenaline-fueled race. But then he is then pursued by a model plane where the one of the revolutionaries has miniaturized themselves and put them inside it. Which by I I no, I'm 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 being coy. Yeah. Facetious. Since when are you against but, using miniatures in movies? I am not because actually this worked pretty well. The plane looked cool. Say, as, and we did get some shots as, of the plane like chasing the car, right? Like that was a full size right. plane. I mean, I mean, well, no, no, it was forced perspective. It was like the oh, plane was. was it? Yeah, it was. There's one part right, right, right before the cut. They should have cut a little bit earlier, where you can tell that the plane is definitely a small plane in front of the camera, and the car is behind the plane. Like it dips down just a little too low. It's a pretty cool but for the pretty cool for the plane. most part. They did really well. That plane, that style of plane, is known uh-huh. as the Rutan Verevigen. Ooh, a Swedish fighter plane, and and it's got that uh, cool wing on the nose. It's a pretty cool plane. Yeah, I think it's hilarious that he basically is able to trick it by making a quick turn and having it turn into the side of a mountain. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. But after that, she wakes up and Frankenstein reveals why he does not take off the one glove. is because he has a literal hand grenade. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> that made me laugh very hard. It's a hand grenade. To the point where I was pissed off that she used it so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think she should have had a little more faith in his driving skills, given that he's right the only repeat winner. Well, I, I guess he's not. I guess those were other drivers, but... I think uh, I think he could have taken him. I think he could have taken Machine Gun Joe. Yeah. 
It's like, because otherwise the whole plan is doomed, you well, know, the whole point. She's got her little switchblade knife. She's got right. her little pen knife she's going to use. <laughs> He's got a lizard. <laughs> Spikes <laughs> on top of his car. All right. Which of these cars would you want? We have five pretty awesome custom cars. They look like something from a carnival. One of them gets wrecked. You know, a lot of these, we read about these movies and they always say, like, where the, what museum the car is in. And it's like some weird automotive museum in, like, Santa Fe or something. Um, no, I haven't seen anything about uh, where one can auction, buy at auction one of these cars. But uh, that Dragon car is pretty awesome. Frankenstein's car. It's pretty sweet. Frankenstein's car is the only one that... I would recognize from this movie if I just saw it like on the street. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's from Death Race 2000." Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know. I'm it doesn't. I don't vibe on that car. Oh really? I don't think I'd want that car. So you can't have the Nazi one. You, you'd be a fucking asshole to want to right. pay money and put that in your garage. So we'll rule that out. I don't want to be a fucking asshole. No. Um, and and Viterbo's car isn't very cool. No, it's not. It's the lamest one of them all. When you give a close-up knife, it really looks like it's painted wood. Yeah, exactly. And then the Tommy guns... They don't shoot. And then the body shape itself doesn't look very cool. So then that leaves what? That leaves Calamity Jane? The the bullhorn car? You've got a bull, and then there's a lion car. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I want any of these cars, personally. I'll take the plane. That plane is pretty sweet. Yeah, the that plane is reminds the me of, of uh, you ever watch Robotech? It reminds me of uh, Rick's little mm. uh, test pilot plane. He rescues Min Mayan. Oh, I was never a Robotech watcher. But mm. if you're talking mask, I'll take Brad Condor's motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> I had that toy. I, it was a good toy. Yeah, it's a good toy. I mean, that wasn't my favorite vehicle on the show, but it's the most useful one to have. Yeah, yeah. Turns into a helicopter. It's pretty great. Yeah, I'll take a little personal helicopter. Sure. Stiletto on. Yeah, my knife, my my mask shoots knives. (laughs) (laughs) Mobile Air Force Strike Command. Didn't get mobile armored Strike Command. Yeah, didn't get the hologram mask or the. Force field mask. Got the one that shoots knives out of my forehead. (laughs) Uh, But if I was going to take any toy, I would definitely take Boulder Hill. I want the gas station that turns into a fortress. That's what I want. Gas pumps turn into turret guns. A boulder falls away to, 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 to show a big gun turret. But then you have to get the boulder back up there. How do you get the boulder back up there? Well, I mean, once they know... I mean, I guess you have to kill them with the turret, yeah. <laughs> or else your cover's blown. Exactly. Yeah, but you can't chase them down. You're in a fortress. True. I guess but I still you, want it. I still want a, my gas station fortress. That's why you need the Condor motorcycle? Chase them down. Exactly. So you fly away when they blow it the fuck up. <laughs> Rhino's pretty cool. I want Rhino too. The semi truck. The 
battering ram, the laser blasters, smokestacks that come down. Oh, okay. Well, secret weapons and vehicles. Kind of disappointing in this movie that we don't get more than one oil slick. But it is our first oil slick of the series. Am I wrong about that? That is very true. No, you're not wrong. We had a smoke screen in The Great Race. Yeah, Professor Professor Fate didn't have an oil slick, did he? I don't think so. I don't think he did. I think he had the smoke screen. Here we have uh, Machine Gun Joe has an oil slick. He's got machine guns, but they're non-functional. So we just need functional machine guns, and then we need the missile, and then we have all the spy hunter classic oh, yeah. weapons. And a you know a semi-truck that pulls up and you can speed into its trailer. All right. So so we need to do the spy hunter countdown. So we 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 need to make the spy hunter checklist. We've got smoke screen, oil slick. Yeah. We need machine guns like, that work and then the truck. Like what are the other classic car? Uh, you got like the shot, the side-off shotgun, like mounted in the side door. The nails. Oh yeah, dropping nails or caltrops. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good one. Now, if you'd seen, Con- I'm not going to blow Condor Man, but if you'd seen Condor Man, you know I, there's some other stuff. You I've can not. Um, I've not. Yeah, I'm not going to blow it. If I'll leave that a secret. James Bond, uh, you might have a, 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 a submarine capability. Oh yes. You'd also have a a bulletproof shield that comes up over your rear windshield, I guess. That's kind of boring. But although what's not boring is the thing that changes your license plate. Oh, different yeah. Different license plates internationally. That's, that's pretty well, we're cool. We're going to get that later in this series, Wade. We, we certainly yeah. will. Yeah, let's not spoil that. Um, also, <laughs> also a classic car, hidden weapon, ejector seat. Ejector seat. Not so useful in, you know, a race where you're supposedly <laughs> whoever's in the car with you is on your side, but. Right. Maybe we'll get lucky. But a classic nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have that option, especially when your navigator turns out as a plant from the rebellion who's trying to get you kidnapped and replaced with a dummy, uh, not a dummy, but a double Ironically, given totally. that Frankenstein Inject reveals to that. her that he is the replacement. He is the double or the triple. He is the double, right? Yeah. yeah. And he intends to be the last. He is going to take down the president. And does he take down the president? Yes. Yeah. Yes. By driving Not under before. Him. <laughs> so Annie gets... Annie puts on his outfit and walks up there because Frankenstein's been wounded. Yeah. But then she gets shot by Thomasina Payne, right? Her own grandmother right. showing the Not misguided... knowing about the plan. The misguided, uh, unproductive nature of her rebellion is that she not only shoots her own granddaughter, but foils the assassination attempt unwittingly. On the very president she's been trying to overthrow. Because she's too occupied with killing the symbol instead of the source of power. Right. Exactly. See, there's a lot going on here. So much so that then the actual symbol just drives into the bandstand and kills him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty conveniently. But you know what? It like, doesn't have to back over it him or anything. Right. No, 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 no. But you know what? It wouldn't have been a fitting ending 
if he, the president, hadn't been killed by a car. No, you I mean, had that's to. just has to be killed you by a car. You had to. Well, and then at the end, we get uh, Don Steele. The real Don Steele is going to get killed by a car. <laughs> right. Because. Who's stupid enough to stand in front of the car and say, what are you going to Yeah. As Floyd uh, very succinctly put it, the message of the movie is both that violence is bad and that watching violence is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And he's and right. That's my belief. Yeah. He's right. Yep. He's right. Violence is bad. I completely. I want viol- I want violence to be only in the movies, and that's it. Yeah. So, like, that's perfect. Yeah. I thought that was a great summary. <laughs> I concur. I, I I think there's nothing else that has to be said about it. I think that I think Floyd did it. it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the brilliance of the movie too. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, if you have any other brilliant observations that you can one sentence summaries uh, of this movie or several paragraphs worth, send them your way. No, send them our way. Well, send them your way first and then do a, a quick edit, make sure it's good, and then send it to us. Uh, email it to us at youwatcheditwrong at happypanic.net. You can also reach us on various social media networks. Uh, we're also pretty active on Letterboxd. You can follow us there. I'm Siggy Lama. He's Carney of Steel. Um, let us know what you think. And when we told someone completely unconnected to our show, Mr. Tori Malatia, that we were going to do a miniseries on wacky race movies, his response was, See you next time.